Hello, this is Meet the Writers. I'm Georgina Godwin. My guest today is a leading Australian cultural figure and philanthropist. She's the founder, executive and artistic director of the Sherman Centre for Culture and Ideas. In 2010, she was made a member of the Order of Australia in recognition of her cultural philanthropy and support of emerging and established artists. For 21 years, she was also the director and proprietor of Sherman Galleries, a commercial space with a focus on artists from Australia, Asia-Pacific and the Middle East. Her book is The Spoken Object, a beautifully photographed monograph of her extensive jewellery, furniture and fashion collections. Dr. Jean Sherman, welcome to Meet the Writers. Thank you so much for having me. It's really, really lovely to have you here, not only because I've seen your book, which is just a work of art, but also because of your background. There's so much that we share in common. And I'd really like to to start there, because although you're hugely associated with Australia, you're actually South African. South African born, uh, left initially in 1964 at age 18, And together with my family, I emigrated to Australia, to Melbourne, as a result of the Sharpeville Massacre in 1961. We were a politicised family, and my father felt that it was unconscionable to remain in South Africa with that kind of brutality and oppression uh, on the agenda, on the official agenda. Your father was really interesting because he was a collector of Persian carpets. A collector of Persian carpets and also of contemporary art, uh, South African art mainly, but there was a dealer in Johannesburg at the time and once he'd made a little money, he started collecting American pop art, which wasn't terribly expensive at that time, Andy Warhol's and uh, Tom Wesselman's and so on, which very luckily for us, we were able to sell later when we uh, re-emigrated then as a married couple with my late husband, Brian, to Australia. It provided us with our early income in order to establish ourselves in Australia. Mm. Just <clears throat> looking back at your early life, yes. I know that your, your grandmother was a really important presence in your Very life. much so. My mother was one of four girls and uh, my grandmother had lost two husbands. And I was raised reading, and one of my favourite books as a little girl was Louisa May Alcott's Little Women. And my mother's and her sister's, each one had a, a sort of correlating person in Little Woman. And my mother was Beth, and Beth was the one who died, who died early, and so did my mother. So my grandmother moved from daughter to daughter every three months to live. She didn't have an income of her own, and so she came to us for three, four months of the year with her sewing machine. That's how she raised the the four girls once she lost her second husband. And I had my basket full of fabrics and uh, ideas. I'm very poor with my hands. I have very little hand-eye coordination. My eye's quite good. My eyes aren't good. I'm short-sighted, but my eye is quite good. But uh, my eye and my hands don't uh, work well together. So I couldn't actually make anything, but she made and I directed. This is as a little girl. I would have been eight or so. And as I grew up, so I waited for her to come with great enthusiasm. Now, you went to Wits University, the yes. University of Wits, and that's where you met your husband. 
Yes, I met him at WITS, uh, the University of Advances run, but he'd actually taken out my cousin, one of my many cousins. You stole your cousin's <laughs> boyfriend? I didn't quite. Uh, <laughs> it looked that way to some people, but it wasn't quite uh, the way it happened. He had given her up, and my grandmother, the same grandmother, had been staying with her mother at the time and considered him a very bad young man who had made Sandy, my cousin, very unhappy. That was in the past, and I met him on the campus at the university. And really, that was the beginning of a love story that lasted till the end of his life, which yes. sadly concluded recently. Seven weeks ago. I'm Almost so to the day. sorry. And mm. this is extraordinary that here you are, you've put together this enormous book and also this event which we're about to talk about. You look amazing and all of this has just, just happened to you. Look, he suffered from Parkinson's for 10 years. It's a dreadful disease. It eats away at you. We were very well aware of the trajectory. But he was a fighter and uh, he wrote two books during the course of those 10 years, one called The Lives of Brian, Plural Lives, his many lives in the financial world as an animal activist, as a family man, and uh, in the South African army, which he was obliged to serve in as he was growing up, as a volunteer in Israel in the 1967 war, as a hitchhiker around Europe, going up and down through Eastern Europe with God knows what in his backpack. And so that was the lives of Brian. And then also the Olympic Games and his financial success with my cousin Lawrence, also one of the many cousins that came out of those four sisters that I described earlier. And then he wrote, in a way, a more important book in some ways called Walking Through Honey. And that was the story of his journey with Parkinson's. And it was a very candid account in diary form, interspersed with his artwork, because he did art therapy, music therapy, speech therapy, hydrotherapy, and so on, exercise physiology. He was determined to put his finger in the dike, as it were, of this flow of horror that Parkinson's brings with it. Mm. And he managed to have written two books anyway is something, I think, quite special, although there are many people who write books, but they're very uh, good books, both of them. But to have written them whilst his Parkinson's was eating away at him, I think, was exceptional. Let's talk about you going back to Australia mm. as a young couple mm. because you arrived with, what, about £5,000 in Five assets? Dollars. Dollars. That's £2,500 <laughs> in today's ca- a conversion. And yes. yet, from that, mm. was the basis of a, of a great fortune which yes. you were then able to spend in a philanthropic way. That's right. How did that happen? Well, because he was a financial guru, you know, he really, he uh, Brian played... He saw the financial world as a chess game. He was a wonderful chess player and a strategist. He didn't really care about money. You know, we didn't have expensive cars. We never owned a yacht, as most people in Sydney. You know, we're on the water and the harbour's sparkling and wonderful sort of opportunities to sail. We didn't have houses all over the world. You, You know, people with our resources often live very differently. I don't drive at all. We have one little mini, you know, <laughs> which, you know, is a very practical, ordinary little car. He did have an ancient Porsche at one time, which became so ancient that we were sort of 
in water when it rained because there were all sorts of difficulties <laughs> in the underbelly of the car until I finally insisted on putting it on the market. But, you know, money did not drive him in order to gain power or to crew material goods. Uh, we always lived in a lovely house, but we lived modestly. We didn't live on the water with grand harbour views of the opera house because those are the expensive homes in Sydney. Everybody wants that gorgeous view. We've always lived in Paddington, Australia, Sydney's Paddington mm -hmm. downtown with all the cafes and the... It's really buzzy. Uh, you yeah, know, the sort of buzzy mm -hmm. kind of places. And uh, we were four blocks from the gallery, the uh, commercial gallery that you mentioned earlier. So I just walked to work and back again. And he walked to the city and back again. It was close enough. I think uh, together with my cousin Lawrence, who was exactly as alive still and well, uh, thank heavens, and um, they had a kind of synergy that allowed them to go where others feared to tread in a way. When they, want, when they started Equity Link, their financial funds management business, they went, just the two of them, to America in 1985, and that was the beginning of the fortune-making. People said, the two of you, how are you going to possibly enter into the vast financial networks of the greatest financial centre probably the world has ever known, which is New York? And they did. Amazing. <laughs> and of course, what this enabled was your fabulous collection, which is documented in your book, The Spoken Object. So let's talk about this collection and, and how it came about. What was the first piece you saw that really inspired you and made you think that maybe this was something you wanted to do? Look, Georgina, you know, collections are uh, sometimes pre-planned and absolutely envisaged in a very formal kind of way. People sometimes hire a curator or a, a collection manager and they tick boxes, they decide they're going to have the most important contemporary artists of the day. There are many ways of putting together a collection. In my case, remember I had a collecting modelled by my father who collected Persian carpets and was very knowledgeable about carpets and also collected in the very early days pop art uh, when you could buy, you know, Andy Warhols and so on that I think they were like 12,000 Australian dollars at the time. So that's 6,000 pounds. So my father had a collecting kind of... Uh, a penchant for collecting, an impetus to collect. Lots of people have an impetus to collect. Children do. They collect all sorts of things, bottle tops and cards and football cards and things out of cereal packages and so on. The idea of collecting, I think, is a very interesting one, and I've done quite a bit of thinking about this over the years. I think people who are really collectors don't need a lot of money. They need a vision. They need a lot of perseverance. They need a kind of drive to classify, mm. to document, to put things together. It's a little bit like putting a puzzle together, a good collection. They need, the puzzle has a framework. They need a kind of framework, whatever it might be. And um, if they are smart collectors, they buy early, they choose the right people, buy when whatever the objects are are not expensive and end up with a valuable collection. 
any collection that's good is more valuable, the sum is more valuable than the individual parts. So my jewellery collection, for example, is about 400 pieces. I mean, that yes. bracelet. Isn't this outstanding? Who's, who's that by? She's um, a Norwegian artist called Tona Vigland, V-I-G-E-L-A-N-D. She's the Picasso of contemporary jewellery. She's an older woman now, and I think her eyes are not good enough to make work at this fine level and the ring which is a three finger ring was created by the pioneers of Australian contemporary jewellery Helia Larson and Durrani Lewis. Helia died recently they sat side by side for 44 something years at a bench and didn't know who made and who designed it was so interconnected with your permission I'm going to take a photograph of that I'm going to put it on my Instagram Georgina C. please do and it's on the cover of the book Georgina exactly (laughs) so people can have a look well let's let's talk about the book let's Mm. let's really because it it basically well it's just a wonderful journey in fashion in jewellery in design and architecture Mm -hmm. and you have all of these essays by all sorts of people who, who really talk about the collection what it means why it's important but also these fantastic photographs and I think if we sort of perhaps break it up and talk briefly about each section so tell us about fashion. Well fashion is really where I would like to start because it circles back to your question which is the first piece. In 1985 this is when Brian was off to America with Lawrence and making a splash and uh, that was the turning point in our fortunes, our financial fortunes. Quite independently of that, happens to be the same year. I stumbled on a little shop in a Sydney suburb, a water harbour side suburb called Double Bay, run by a very eccentric woman called Rhonda Parry. And in the window was a jacket with one arm in place and one arm absent. And um, I looked through the window. There was back in five minutes. Rhonda was hardly ever in the shop. (laughs) And she never came back in five minutes when there was a back in five minutes notice, I have to say. But she eventually came back. And um, I was teaching at the time and I was in a hurry and watching my watch. When is this woman coming to open her doors? And that jacket was by Isimiyaki. Now, I had not heard of him at the time. But in 1987, just two years later, I started my gallery one year later in 1986. I left uh, education. I was teaching at a girls' school then, running the Modern Languages Department. And in 1987, I made my first trip to Japan with two of my artists uh, who were participating in a show in a museum on the outskirts of Tokyo called the Saitama Museum. And very few people spoke English in those days in Japan, so we were sort of all trying to, you know, find some way of communicating. And I did find an English speaker, hesitant one, and said, uh, because I wanted to know about Isimiyaki. This is after the speeches had uh, completed and so on. And I said to this person, have you ever heard of a fashion designer called Isimiyaki? Oh, yes, he said. I said, oh, is he very famous? Why are you saying it so emphatically? Oh, he said, a very important, very important artist. So I said, well, where can I go to see more work? And that started my journey. 58 trips later uh, to Japan and uh, every time a visit to the Miyake shop, which I did in London when I arrived a few days ago, and I accumulated this collection. And I made a policy, which I stick to to this very day, 
I had a look at what I could fit in to my wearing wardrobe at the time because we moved homes a number of times, always in the same area but moved for various reasons, often to, you know, find a little more space. I, uh, 32 garments, now it's 55, one in, one out. So when I acquire something, which I did in London two days ago, I bought two things, two things go. And I have different pathways. If they are major pieces to the Powerhouse Museum in Sydney, and there are 100 pieces in their collection from my collection over the years, a friend or two who is the same shape and size as me and who doesn't have the financial resources that I have, although these clothes at the beginning were very well-priced, and then finally uh, vintage stores. Let's talk about architecture because that's another major Mm, part of the book. Tell us how that's represented within these pages. Well, everything else in the book bar architecture, Georgina, is part of a collection. I haven't collected architecture. (laughs) Although one can nowadays, in a way, because these pavilions and going back to the Serpentine Pavilion Mm. in London, which was my inspiration for my pavilion series, which was called Fugitive Structures. You know, people are collecting some of those pavilions and inserting them into country homes and into other public spaces. So architecture is an area of my interest where there was no aim or goal of making a collection. But, you know... My first love was literature. My, I have a PhD in French literature, and that was my career as I saw it at the time. Coming to Australia and finding, after five years or so, that Australia had repositioned itself vis-à-vis our geographic region, Asia, as opposed to thinking of Britain as the mother country and America as our sort of big brother and Europe as our playground and as our suite of trading partners, suddenly there was this very firm government directive and also awareness that we were far away from all these other places and that we needed to get to know our neighbours. So teaching French became a little bit of an old-fashioned activity because the student numbers during my five years at uh, Sydney University teaching went from 800 to 200. So that tells you Mm. what happened. So basically, I then went into the gallery, as we've described. I focused on Asia, the Asia-Pacific. I travelled all over, as we've described. But after 21 years of running the gallery, and remember, I had no training in financial. I didn't do commerce or business studies or anything to do with that kind of practical side of education at university. I had this guru-like financial husband who set me in the right path, but was very careful to allow me to find my own way. So when I decided to move from the commercial world to the philanthropic world, I didn't have to sell anymore. So I broadened my remit to really embrace my interests, which were not just art. They were art, architecture, fashion, film, and design. And that's what I did in an exhibiting Um, within an exhibiting framework for 10 years. And architecture became a very big part of that. Mm. Mm. And all of this is reflected in this very, very beautiful book. But what it's also reflected in is your work across, you've been on the boards of most cultural institutions. You've really driven the cultural narrative in Australia. And now you've taken on a project which brings that to a much, much wider world. And it's happening actually in London 
next month. So let's talk about your Hub series. So it launched last night, uh, 28th of October, at the Design Museum in London, which was a very appropriate venue because fashion and design and uh, architecture are all part of their remit. It's six years old, that Design Museum, in that location, although the history goes back further, as many people here would know. The place was started by Sir Terence Conran, and it was at the V&A for a while, and then at Chad Thames for a while, but it's been in this very beautiful, architecturally beautiful building designed by John Pawson for the past six years, and run by a very wonderful and vibrant director, Timothy Marlowe. So here I am with 45 Australian creatives across art, architecture, fashion, film and design. I've covered all these disciplines. The core topics are fashion and architecture, though. And then the point of these hubs, which are really conferences, but they're conferences with a difference. And um, the point of them is to take those core topics of fashion and architecture and organise, curate uh, sessions where these disciplines intersect with other disciplines, whether it's film, whether it's art, whether it's literature. And at the core of every single one of the 16 sessions, there are 16 sessions across two long weekends, this weekend, the one that we're in, and then next weekend, finishing on the 6th of November, the core kind of question that everybody who has been curated into this is asked to consider, and they have been invited because of their ability to consider this question, is how to mend the world in some way. So it's, you know, the word sustainability is so overused now, it's very hard to extract meaning from it. But the idea of mending the world, I think, is a better, it's a less cliched way of saying the same thing. Mm. How are we going to fashion for ourselves a sustainable future? Because at the rate we're going, it's not looking very positive. And we all know that. Mm. And is there a sort of theme that's coming through that answers that question? Well, every session asks the question and attempts to answer it. So I'll give you some examples. So last night was the first session of the 16. Uh, Lucy McRae, who's a wunderkind young Australian living in L.A., is a fashion futurist and a body architect. I know it sounds terribly esoteric and <laughs> nobody quite knows what it means, including me. But she gave a, an hour-long talk last night as part of the opening party and 200 people were there. The auditorium was filled. In a particular uh, world, she's very famous. She's probably in her late 30s now. What Lucy's trying to do is imagine our bodies and our habitats in a world that is quite unlike the world that we have today, in a future world, with the focus on well-being. How are we going to live well in a world that will probably be very different from the world we know it? Oh, absolutely. Mm. Uh, and so what other big names are planned for the next week or so? Georgina, you know, a lot of these Australians are not big names, not here. Mm. And therefore, I was so worried. I mean, one of my great anxieties around this monumental project, 62 Australians have got on planes in order to come. 45 are speakers and 12 are, uh, I hope my numbers are going to add up, but 12 are uh, patrons. 
Uh, and then I've got staff. I've got a whole team here. I didn't rely on new people. These, This is my eighth hub. So the rest wow. have done in Sydney. So I've really uh, got a, a group of 62. So most of these people, whether they are artists, whether they're all working around fashion design and architecture, but they're coming from different disciplines and they're all mixed in together. So you don't have one person standing up and saying, this is my work. It's not that kind of thing at all. The moderators are very experienced and expert and they knit the people's experiences together. And so almost all of these people are mid-generation Almost all of them, I'd say all of them, are very well known in Australia or quite well known in Australia. Most of them are not known in the UK at all. Some of them have had global exposure. Remember, Australia is very far away. There's been a pandemic. Some of these people are in their late 20s, early 30s, and they've had almost three years of not being able to move. And so... I can't give you big names because I don't think that your listeners or you would recognize these names. Maybe one would be Sean Gladwell, who's a very well-known, well-represented in museum collections Australian artist. He's about just under 50, I would say. He's talking with a young, much younger Australian artist called Atong Atem of South Sudanese heritage who lives in Melbourne. And that session is moderated by Brett Rogers, who is very well known in living in London, but she's an Australian originally. Everyone's Australian, (laughs) uh, Australian originally. And she has been director for many years of the Photographer's Gallery. She was at the British Council originally. Mm. So, I mean, this is just a fantastic series and we're very, very lucky to have it here in London. It's been brought together. There's a whole lot of government to government and cultural institution to cultural institution uh, work behind the scenes. But of course, you are the person that brought it together. And there's much more detail about that. Uh, People can find out. (laughs) Uh, The Sherman Centre for Culture and Ideas. We'll have much more detail on that. But just before we go, I want to go back to this beautiful book and the collection that it represents. As you say, you lost your husband just seven weeks weeks ago. And of course, he was an integral person, not only to you, but to this collection. Does the collection continue without him? Well, he was integral to our art collection. This book is about the applied arts, wearable arts, fashion. Here I am, you know, yeah. I'm wearing a Comme des Garçons jacket, tone of Which I deeply envy. <laughs> Um, And so, you know, he wasn't integral to the fashion collection. He wasn't really integral to the jewellery collection either, which has been put together. Bijoux d'artiste, I mean, these are individual pieces. They're not designed by someone and then made in an atelier in a kind of, you know, a group. You couldn't have this collection in Harrods because there's one of each. Yes. Yes, they art artwear jewellery. So he wasn't really integral to the jewellery collection, except he bought me things at birthdays and anniversaries, and he had a very good eye, and he always chose well, and he knew me, of course, intimately. The furniture collection is a much more recent collection put together for the current house that we're in. And this house, Bray Lynn, was built for the Lord Mayor of Sydney in 1918 and has stables. It's actually almost like a little village. There are five buildings on one property. 
but I bought the house, or we bought the house, because of his Parkinson's. It is a single-storey house, which is unusual in the row of houses that face Centennial Park. So it's a very beautiful location just by Paddington where all the little row houses are, which we lived in, one of them we lived in for 16 years. So the furniture collection really wasn't... He was too ill by the time we moved into that house to be actively involved, although his eye was always involved and I always conferred with him. The architecture project, he was more across because they started in 2013, inspired by the Serpentine, as I said, but I chose much younger artists, architects. I considered them artists. They weren't building livable buildings, really. Where he was integral to my collecting life and our collecting life was in the art collection. And that's quite separate from the book. And I don't know whether there'll be another book because what I'm going to do after these hubs is I am going to write another book, but it'll be a a memoir and an autobiography. Jean, it's been absolutely fascinating talking to you and I look forward to that second book because this book, The Spoken Object, is just lovely. Now, I have to tell you before we go that I'm a collector too and what I collect is books signed by the author within five minutes of our interview concluding. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm going to ask you to do just that in a moment. Such a great pleasure, honestly. (laughs) The Spoken Object by Dr Jean Sherman is uh, published by Images Publishing group it's out now and of course you can also attend the hub series and there's much more information about that on the internet you've been listening to meet the writers thanks to our producer nora hull researcher emily sands and you can download this show and previous episodes from our website or app from soundcloud mixcloud or itunes i'm georgina godwin thank you for listening